And one more thing, folks. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of a Swell episode from back in April. Uh, Since it's vacation season for many of our staff, you'll be hearing perhaps a few more repeats than usual this month. But never fear... For you, our podcasting faithful, we will also be uploading a number of bonus podcast-only episodes this month, Uh, among them a new installment of our series Speakeasy, in which we take you behind the scenes of our interview with comedian Jim Gaffigan. That's coming out this Tuesday, August 9th. And later in August, it's the episode many of you puzzlingly wait all year long for, our annual All Icebreaker Show, featuring an astonishing number of very bad jokes, as told by the likes of Sir Ian McKellen, Ellie Kemperer, and many more. Keep your ears peeled for all that, but for now, here's your icebreaker. Okay, so I, uh, I, I bought my friend an elephant for their room. They said thank you. I said don't mention it. Get it? I'm Rico Galliano. Elephant in the room. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, an hour of culture, food, and better humor than that to fuel your weekend conversations. Yes, you just got a joke from actor Nicholas Holt. That'll help break the ice. You may know him as The Boy in About a Boy or Nux the War Boy from Mad Max Fury Road. But today we'll be speaking with him about his latest movie, Kill Your Friends. Plus, we'll speak with Tatiana Maslany. She just got an Emmy nomination for her multifaceted starring role in the show Orphan Black. Also coming up, musician and Broadway composer Duncan Sheik gets blood on his hands, and the band Heron Oblivion parties in a chicken shack. No animals were harmed, but first, let's have a drink. Once again, we tell you a true tale from history, then challenge a bartender to capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our legally trademarked history lesson, With booze. It really is trademark, too. We'll sue you. And as always, we're going to start with the history part, but this time we're doing something a little different with it. We are giving our stalwart voice of history, Michelle Philippi, the week off, and instead as part of our occasional partnership with the online cabinet of curiosities called Atlas Obscura, we are joined by journalist David Goldenberg. This week in Atlas, he published a piece about the unlikely history of the bulletproof vest. Mm. And David, welcome. Thank you. So the story of the bulletproof monk and the Polish Edison it sounds like Sherlock Holmes meets wrestling. Uh, tell our listeners about it. Sure. So uh, back in the late 1800s in 1893, there was this Polish monk who uh, came to Chicago in America where there was a huge Polish Still is. population. Yeah, absolutely. And his name was Kashmir Zeglin. Okay. And uh, Not inspiration for the Led Zeppelin song. I don't believe so, no. <laughs> but he had grown up his life in rural Poland and knew to the big city and then Right after he got there, the mayor of Chicago was assassinated. Mm. And while everyone was shocked, Kashmir Zeglin was more shocked than most people. He couldn't believe that someone would do this. Mm. And so he wanted to figure out a way to prevent this from ever happening again. Mm. So he invented a bulletproof vest. This is what year? This is 1893. And Um, what did he make it of? Well, so there are lots and lots of different materials he tried. Um, How do you try making a bulletproof vest? (laughs) It seems like you have one shot. So, yes, the the first ones he didn't try while wearing. Oh, I see. But um, he tried, you know, steel wool. He tried feathers. He tried tried parts of a bird nest that he thought were really strong. Interesting. But then he stumbled onto silk. And silk, as you probably heard with, you know, Spider-Man and whatnot, it's pretty strong stuff. Silk can stop bullets? It can if it's it's folded the right way. And in fact, basically all he had to do was fold the silk over a bunch of different times, stuff it into the vest, and bulletproof monk. Yeah. So who is this other character, the Polish Edison? So Zeglin. He decides to go to Europe where um, sort of the textile industry has really started booming and he can make a lot of these vests at once. Mm. So he travels to Vienna 
And he meets up with this other Polish guy named Jan Szaponik, one of the most famous Polish people in the world, and in fact still is, mm. who is known as the Polish Edison. And the reason he was known as the Polish Edison is because Mark Twain called him the Polish Edison. Oh, my God. He had invented you know, the world's first telectroscope, which was sort of like a proto-TV, a new kind of submarine, a, an electric gun, like all sorts of different cool stuff. Zeglin gets introduced to Szaponik, and they start working together to mass-produce these vests. Zeglin heads back to the U.S., you know, knowing that he can fill all of these, these orders that he's about to get. Sure. But the orders don't come because it turns out that he's asking way too much money, basically, for his vest. Mm. So it does beg the question, is like, how much is too much for something that protects you from bullets? I'd pay a lot for that. Yeah, seems. the advertisements from back in the day said $50. It's, a, it's over $1,000 today. And gun crime wasn't as prevalent then. Gun crime wasn't as prevalent. But then, in 1901, our president, McKinley, was assassinated. And it turns out if he had been wearing one of Zeglin's patented you know, silk productions, he would have survived. So boom times for the bulletproof vest industry after this? Yes, exactly. So Zeglin and Japanic both realized that, hey, this we're about to make a lot of money. Mm. And Japanic realizes that, hey, I don't need this Zeglin guy, this naive priest. This what? <laughs> and in fact, I know how to get as much publicity as I want. So I'm going to start selling these things on my own. He 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 rooked a priest. He rooked a priest. Isn't yeah. that a wait? That's a chess move, right? <laughs> I guess it kind of is. Um, yeah. And that's terrible. And we, in fact, people still don't know about this. Um, and the only reason I know about this is that there's this professor at the Polish Academy of Sciences named Sławomir Lotysz, okay. who over the last five years has been digging up all this correspondence that Zeglin wrote and has realized Zeglin was actually the person who invented this. So what what ultimately happens? I mean, does Zeglin ever make anything off of this? Zeglin never makes anything off of this. There's a bunch of wars that are about to start. I don't know if you're familiar with World War I. Heard of it. But, um, <laughs> so there's all these people trying to um, buy bulletproof vests, and Zeglin will go to try to sell stuff, and they're like, oh, well, we actually talked to Schepanik the other day. We're, we're, we're good. And, oh, and of course, God. he can't try to settle this in a duel with Schepanik because they both have vests. <laughs> so that's how. <laughs> that, that. It's going to be a draw. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you can read more about this fascinating piece of history at atlasobscura.com. David's article is there along with vintage photographs of these guys demonstrating their invention. David, thanks so much for the history lesson. My pleasure. After that, we need a drink. All right, this is the part of the show where we ask a bartender to create a custom cocktail inspired by that history. So I'm speaking to Kate Jerome, who is behind the bar at the Bedford in Chicago's Wicker Park neighborhood, where Zeglin's former church still stands. Kate? Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So tell me, how did you come up with this drink? Um, I came up with it last night when I was at work and kind of got obsessed with the priest that came up with the bullets with Beth. Okay. We like that in a bartender. <laughs> tell me about this drink you made for us. Um, well, I start by taking a rocks glass, and then I'll take out a shaker. Okay. And I'll pour two ounces of bullet rye. I see what you did there with the bullet rye. Oh, yeah. You have to. Mm-hmm. Then a half an ounce of pickled beet juice. Mm. Why did you go that route? Mostly to be the color of sacramental wine. Mm. And then, you know, it reminds you of church. <laughs> Do you use beet juice in other cocktails, or did you just break that out for this particular drink? I like beets. I knew he was Polish. Mm-hmm. People that are Polish love beets, and that's mm-hmm. what, you know, me and my grandma <laughs> would probably do when we're cooking in a kitchen. Okay, so you threw in some beet juice, got some whiskey, and you and your grandma are rocking out. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> uh, then uh, we have another half ounce of Benedictine, because that's made by monks. Okay, and what is Benedictine? It's a herbal liqueur that's kind of sweet. It was made to be medicine back in the day. My health insurance plan doesn't cover Benedictine. I don't <laughs> you think. can write it off in your taxes. Oh, good to know. <laughs> and then what comes next? Lemon juice that make it tart. Mm-hmm. And then a dash of orange bitters. Maybe to represent the bitterness that Father Zeglin had in his heart after losing out to the Polish Edison. Yeah, exactly. And so you have all these ingredients in a glass, and then what happens next? Um, then you pour an ice and shake it. 
strain it and pour it into the roxla. Okay. And then take three very long lemon twists, braid them together, and mm-hmm. then just wrap it around the ice cube. Like a vest on the ice cube. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's a large ice cube, not smaller ones. So it's more of like a bulletproof headband than a bulletproof vest. I mean, I am a girl. <laughs> <laughs> Enrico, here's some schadenfreude for you. Oh, goody. Schaponik, the Polish Edison, apparently didn't make much money off bulletproof vests, just like his partner Zeglin the Priest. Well, I guess that's justice of a it sort. It is, but the, but the reason being, guns became more powerful and silk vests could no longer stop bullets. Oh, man. I was hoping it was because gun violence had decreased. Have you studied history of in course. the 20th century? But a man can dream. Yeah. Uh, folks, you will find recipes and lots more about that story at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the soundtrack in which some great musicians DJ your dinner party. And today our guests are the members of Heron Oblivion. The Bay Area band is one part peaceful folk rock crooning and one part heavy psych guitar. Mm. Pitchfork says their songs, quote, slip easily between dynamics, harmony to dissonance, Quiet to loud. We agree. Here's the whole band with a playlist and to teach you a fun new word. We are here in Oblivion, and this is our dinner party soundtrack. Let's set the scene for the dinner party. We're at a um, chicken coop in Bolinas, otherwise known as a CAC. A CAC is a a mix between a chicken coop and a shack, uh, a one-room dwelling um, out uh, near the seaside in Northern California. We're going to put on Gabor Zabo's Spellbinder. Gabor Zabo is an amazing jazz guitarist from the 1960s. I think he's Hungarian. He uh, combines some gypsy vibes with some uh, pop jazz vibes, some psychedelic vibes. He's my favorite guitar player, maybe, in the universe. Known also for his beautifully placed notes, like even though he's a virtuoso guitar player, it's not like crazy uh, ripping, shredding stuff. It's just kind of like super minimal notes placed in the right place, little sparks in front of your eyes. You know, you walk in, you've got Spellbinder going, you know, maybe there's a little uh, incense going, you know, lots of hugs, maybe kiss on the left cheek, kiss on the right cheek, you know, smell each other's hair a little bit as you hug. Mmm, this is great. For the next song at our at our dinner party, we're going to listen to uh, Fallen Stars End by a Japanese band called White Heaven. They do a really sincere version of like 60s flower power counterculture acid rock through the looking glass of 1980s and the 1990s Japan, Tokyo extreme rock scene. There's a very beautiful and uh, triumphant arpeggiating guitar solo that um, kind of stops the world from rotating on its axis for uh, about 45 seconds. You know, I, I really feel like that there is a kind of like a Pacific sound in that music. 
that would help with getting people outside. You take a break. You take a break. Something with the weather just happened, so everybody steps out on the deck to take a quick look. Spooky fog. All that stuff. And everybody's been kind of outside for a while and maybe getting cold. Maybe, you know, it's time for some hot food and a little fire, a little wood smoke. A little wood smoke and fire in the cack. You got to be very, very careful when you have a fire in a chicken shack. Um, but uh, <laughs> Arthur Brown's fire would definitely stoke the appetite right about now. I am the god of hellfire and I bring you fire. Arthur Brown's Fire came out in 67. Pete Townsend, actually, I think, was the executive producer. It's pretty ecstatic, pretty like a voodoo by way of South London. He's an amazing character, literally performed with fire on his head. It's freak rock. What happens when that song comes on? Because that's a big jam for a party. Massive spillage is happening at the uh, party at this point in time. It's kind of theatrical. Yeah, all the big theatrical stuff that came after probably came there, right? Alice Cooper wouldn't have happened without uh, Arthur Brown. You're gonna burn! So now uh, we've been asked to play one of our own songs. We kind of round up the guests. We sit them down next to um, next to something that's burning, and um, I think we'd put on Rama. It starts off very atmospheric. Then we get into a chorus before taking off for sort of a full launch. Guitar is blazing bass and drums firing off on all cylinders. Meanwhile, at the dinner party, the the crowd goes wild. I'm going skinny dipping, for sure. Dinner Party soundtrack from the band Heron Oblivion, recorded at the Marfa Myths Festival in March, and they're on tour now. All right, coming up, Mad Max star Nicholas Holt on Fanny Packs and his latest film, Kill Your Friends, and later Orphan Black star Tatiana Maslany on playing clones and yin-yang twins. When the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should let you know that this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired in April. It's a pretty good one. Indeed. Later, actor Tatiana Maslany, who's up for an Emmy for her starring role in BBC America's Orphan Black, dispenses very expensive etiquette advice. But first, <laughs> let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's Nicholas Holt. Back in the early aughts, he played the preteen boy in the beloved romantic comedy About a Boy. 
Holt and his career have grown a little bit since then. He plays Beast in the X-Men movies. Last year, he played the warboy Nux in Mad Max Fury Road. And you can see him right now opposite Kristen Stewart in a flick called Equals. But I spoke to him about the movie Kill Your Friends, which came out earlier this year. Right. In it, he plays Stephen, a venal player in the hyper-competitive British record industry of the late 90s. The plot involves lots of sex, bloodshed, and drugs. When I met mm. with Holt, I asked him about the latter. What does the art department use for fake cocaine? Oh, uh, yes, they use um, glucose powder. Do you actually inhale it? Like yeah, you, you, have to in, you have to inhale it. It's actually very difficult because obviously uh, Stell Fox, the character I play in this film, is, is meant to be quite the stud yeah. at, uh, taking cocaine. And I don't, I don't, my lung capacity isn't that great. Mm. They would rack up these fake sugary lines of cocaine and... Mm -hmm. and I would, I would look at it. I'd see it during the beginning of the take, and I'd be like, "Damn, I've got to try and yeah. inhale that now." And yeah. mid midway through this, and, and try and do it, and normally fail. Once I remember, then coughing and, and blowing the all the rest of the fake cocaine mm. over James Corden. It's a fake cocaine party foul, right? It there. Was, there was we were on sugar highs constantly. The mm. the tough the toughest fake cocaine snorting in this movie was. There's a scene where it's one shot kind of over my back and I have to snort this line and then and then lay down on the floor and I'm kind of really messed up at this point and then pretend to throw up. So as well as having to snort the cocaine, I was also in throughout the scene having to hold the fake sick in my mouth. Wow. Which is like, it's th yeah. those are things that no one ever teaches you in life. <laughs> and you get there on the day and then they explain you have yeah. to do it and you're like, wow, okay. I yeah. wish I'd been training for this somehow. Well. You know, if you'd lived a different life, perhaps if you hadn't had such a successful career as an actor, you could have been living that life. You know? Yes. So so this character you play, Stephen Stelfox, he's a, a sociopathic, ambitious, soulless, sexist record company executive in the 90s. Yeah, an A&R manager, yeah. There's no comeuppance. There's no uh, redemption. There's no even you don't even really get a window into why he is why he is yeah. as anti-hero as it gets. Is that hard to kind of show nuance over the course of two hours when there's just one uh, sort of uh, well you could probably tell me well <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think you succeeded but I did were you preparing in any particular way well, it, no that is tricky that's something that I think Owen Harris and John Niven the writers were very brave about um, mm. because it you know obviously yeah there is an actor you're like well how do I condone this what's the thinking what's the idea behind it um, and there really isn't that much of one there isn't a comeuppance and occasionally I would I'd be like yeah but maybe maybe yeah. we can have a scene where you know there's there's a little bit, a yeah. little break, and and there is a he holds the door open for moment. an old lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a there's a one there's kind of one moment in the film when it's his lowest, and you think maybe this is his turning point. Maybe he's about to switch things around. Um, so yeah, that that's a difficult character to play. I think the the relish from this character would be the thing to really enjoy about him would be that that nasty eloquence he has. You see, there's one thing you have to understand about the music industry. We have no obligation to make art. We have no obligation to make political statements. We have no obligation to make good records. We have an obligation to make money. I mean, do these look like the shoes of someone who gives a f about the Velvet Underground? Well, interestingly, the, your, the movie about a boy, which was your breakout role mm. when you were 13, uh, that came out in the early aughts, kind of in this whole Cool Britannia era, right? But I'm wondering what your character... Stell Fox would say about a, about a boy. I mean, to be perfectly honest, if, if you even suggested the idea of him going to the cinema to watch a film, yeah. he'd probably be utterly mortified. He'd be like, hell no. <laughs> He's like, I'm, I'm not going sitting to... through that. I'm going to go to the bar. Yeah. And we're going to, you know. Go to a strip club or something as yeah. opposed to that. Because theoretically, he could have overlapped with young you. Yeah, maybe like, there's, there's only maybe four there's, years maybe out. Maybe there's a way of doing some strange edit where <laughs> we 
put him into scenes. I'm sure with maybe little me with that me. And maybe then, Reddit and then, will be on that. Yeah, you know, you are among this pack of actors like Michael Fassbender, James McAvoy, uh, Matthew Good, Eddie Redmayne, who we've had on the show. These Brits who've just taken over Hollywood. Do you guys ever talk amongst yourselves about, man, we've really cracked the code. Like, we know how to get casting agents to say yes. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. That list is brilliant. That's very flattering of you to include me in that list because those are all people that I look up to. Hmm. What's the, what's the so, trick with America? I think there's a couple of tricks. Um, one is that kind of a lot of the time in American casting, they believe that you're classically trained <laughs> if you're British, even if you're not. Hmm. Um, which means, think, which has a lot of things to so they think you can, they assume you can deliver a line, you know, they assume that you kind of approach a script maybe more rigorously. Than yeah, which I know a, all those yeah. guys really do, and I, I try to as well. So there is a work ethic, I think. Mm. Um, there's certainly a work ethic that the Brits have, I'm not saying that there's not with American actors. But it, you know what the strange thing is? There's kind of this movement nowadays where people want to be famous. Mm. But the, the, if you kind of ask what they wanted to be famous for, a lot of the time people wouldn't even know what they wanted to be famous for. It's just like a given right to yeah. be famous. Yeah. It? Instagram or whatever it might be, and I think, um, I think the the key thing for any actor has been in it for the right reason. And that's trying to do good work, I guess. Yeah. So how about let me ask you this? Right. It's more of a it's more of a request, which is tell us something we don't know, something you haven't shared in interviews before, or it could just be an interesting fact about the world, like an interesting piece of trivia. An interesting fact, something we don't. Well, this is okay. This is something that I didn't know that I just found out the other All day. Right. I've been taking. Um, yoga classes okay <laughs> as part of prep for this film coming up and i get very sweaty so okay. i get wrinkly mm, mm-hmm, you know the mm-hmm, wrinkliness mm-hmm. And, then I, and then i found out that i thought that was like because so much liquid leaving or entering your body through osmosis but apparently it's an old uh, an old thing of evolution whereby when you get like wrinkly fingers that's so that you can grip better underwater so when we sweat our bodies think we're going underwater yeah this is just because i i have <laughs> There's such a high quantity of sweat. Really? <laughs> it sounds disgusting. Is that tough when you're... But when you were in X-Men, you it would take you like four hours to right, become Beast. Yeah, right? on the last film, it got down to... The guys got it down to like two hours for the face prosthetics and wig and everything, and then like half an hour to get into like costume. And, and, they're, and they're putting like sheep pelts on you and stuff, or goat fur. Well, how, this, this one's more lightweight, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how was the sweat? How was the sweating scene there? I mean, were you... I, it was it was it was pretty high again but you know what there was a great invention that the guys had for me this time around which was um it was like, it's basically like a, i think you guys call it a fanny pack um, oh yeah that's that, been around for a little bit that, well no but this is high tech where you have a t-shirt on that has like piping mm-hmm. around it and then you have this fanny pack which has ice cold water in there's a little battery uh-huh. switch it on and it pumps cool water around That's amazing. Like, your t-shirt yeah i could yeah. use that in the subway in the summer you definitely could <laughs> they, and so, so and what color was the fanny pack this this it was just black it was you know cool yeah it was a cool fanny pack it was really, very cool really i big. mean i mean when the beast's <laughs> wearing it nicholas holt his latest movie is called Kill Your Friends. Mm. And by the way, he mentioned doing yoga for an upcoming film. Yeah. It's a biopic about J.D. Salinger called Rebel in the Rye. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Another American played by a Brit? Is this their revenge for the Revolutionary War? They come over here and steal our acting jobs? What's going I think on? That's a really weird revenge to exact. But <laughs> I guess. Maybe. Anyway, folks, you'll find details about Kill Your Friends, as well as interviews with many of this wave of British actors, which we've done on the show, including Eddie Redmayne at dinnerpartydownload.org.
time to eavesdrop. Writer Don Tripp's essays have appeared in The Believer, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Her fourth novel is a national bestseller. It took her six years to write. Today we overhear an excerpt. Hi, my name is Don Tripp, and my new novel, Georgia, is a biographical novel about the American artist Georgia O'Keeffe. It's written from her point of view in an imagined voice, and I want to share a chapter with you from her childhood growing up in Wisconsin on a farm in Sun Prairie. It's just around the year 1900. They fell like trees, the males of my father's family. First the gritty flush, then the telltale hectic cough, consumption. It got into their lungs and shredded them. My father had left school to pour himself into the fields when his own father died of it. Then it took his two older brothers. His last brother, the youngest, Bernard, died in my mother's arms. She had brought him into our farmhouse to nurse him because there was no one else. I remember her stern and regal face bent over him, her lovely aquiline features, traces of the royal lineage she had descended from, to this. After Bernard was gone and his room had been scrubbed and tidied, linens burned, we never spoke of him by name. There was a day, though, I remember not long after, late summer, the warm breeze pressed through the open window. I came upon my mother sitting in her bedroom. On the table beside her were a pair of golden emerald earrings, an exquisite gift her father had made to his wife before he sailed home to Hungary and never returned. Those earrings were my mother's most prized possession. She pinned them to her ears when she entertained ladies from town for tea, a token of wealth and exile, of exotic splendor. The day I found her in her bedroom, she was sitting very still. It frightened me, her broken face, grief pouring through it. It was not Bernard she was mourning, but her own relinquished life. I was eleven and old enough to understand. After Bernard was gone, everything changed. Our father grew solemn, skittish, no longer the fiddle-playing, laughing, light-hearted man that I adored. Fear of the white plague dogged him. Every cough or fever made him jump. He drank heavily. There were rumors of horse theft, fights, a woman he kept in town. We never spoke of any of it. The following winter, the mercury dropped to 30 below. Snow piled up 10 feet. Drawing classes began for us that winter. I didn't have the talent my younger sisters had. We drew sprays of oats and twigs, painful imitations of still lives, failed paintings that my mother framed and hung. But one night, on my way upstairs, pausing by the window on the landing, I caught a glimpse of something fleeting on the snow. I took a step closer. Just moonlight on the field, that's all it was. Trees bare and dark against the white. Across the field, a pale, lean strip of sky. I made a picture of it. The first picture I made that said something to me, 
Trees, shadows, moonlight. And not moonlight as I saw it, but the feeling I had looking out at that field. The soft work of night. How it skinned the world open. My parents sold the farm and left. My mother was just beginning to show the early signs of illness, but still, we knew. We headed east. My mother packed the gold and emerald earrings and the framed copies of paintings that I hated. I packed the moonlight on the field. Dawn Tripp, reading from her latest novel, Georgia. That piece was edited for time. And you are listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. Now, let's learn some matters. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is actor Tatiana Maslany. For the last three years, she starred as not one, not two, but nine and counting characters on the much-acclaimed BBC America series Orphan Black. Yes. It's about a woman who finds out she's one of many identical clones. And with the help of her clone sisters, who range from uptight soccer moms to stoners, she tr- sounds like my high school class. <laughs> yep. She tries to get to the bottom of how it all happened. Last year, she earned an Emmy nomination for Best Actress, but it could have been nine nominations. <laughs> you like that? I like that. You never get Nobody that. Nobody said that before. <laughs> well, no, no. That's, really? Well, that's no. Hat, hat tip to our producer, Jackson Musker. <laughs> Uh, the series returns April 14th, and Tatiana, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So first of all, auditioning for this role, yeah. did you have to read nine different parts? Well, like we didn't our... know about most of the clones at that mm-hmm. point, so there were like three or four that I had to do, and okay. one of them was Sarah playing Beth. Oh, mm. the the punky Sarah clone pretending to be Beth, who's a cop. Yeah, so mm. the kind of like mashed up clone uh, thing. But yeah, it was just kind of like theater sports in front of the, you know, crowd of execs. That's something because um, uh, Sarah has a, a British accent and yes. uh, Beth is quite Canadian, I suppose. Yeah. Or like non-threatening, just general North American. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she is generic North American. Yeah. Well, let's hear a scene actually that features one of those characters. Uh, we're going to hear actually in order, Allison, the soccer mom clone, then Sarah, the punky Brit, and then the introduction of Cosima, who's a stoner, all of them played by Tatiana Maslany. Be quiet, my kids are sleeping. You're gonna shoot me while your kids are sleeping. You wake them or show your face. Yes, I will shoot you. Well, I've never known a blood relation, but being your twin certainly sucks. You really have no idea, do you? Hey, I'm Cosima. Bloody hell. We talked on the phone. So good. But it's so complicated. Like, it isn't difficult enough that you have scenes like that where you've got three clones played by the same person. But sometimes, as you mentioned, one clone will pretend to be another clone. How do you keep even just the plot straight in your head? That is totally beyond me. The plot, I have no (laughs) idea. That's why I struggle so much in these things, like in press, because people are like, so tell us about the direction of the season. I'm like, I have no clue what's going on. I can only take care of what I'm doing in that moment because there's just so many 
plot lines, yeah. and and I I'm just not a plot person. Do you ever hear like a maniacal cackle from the writers' room? Just yeah, <laughs> this will drive her insane. Screw this you, will drive Dad. Them yeah. all crazy. Good luck, buddy. It is really intense. We yeah. actually created a software program just to get ready for this interview. Oh, nice. We'll, we'll share it with Could you, you afterwards. Please pass that on to me. <laughs> well, it requires some heavy government computers. Yeah. Right. So okay. It's hard. The most recent season ended with a dinner party. Forgive us for bringing it up, but you know that's the name of our show. And it oh, yeah. featured four of your clone characters mixed in with other clones around a, a long table, even right. knowing about green screens and such things. It's crazy to watch that unfold. How did the actual filming of that scene happen? Well, that was complicated. We had like rehearsal so we could get down the details of who passes the beef to who and when, and like how can we touch each other but not touch each other. Mm-hmm. Um but that that scene, I, I shot mostly with people, which was kind of nice. Oh, because usually if the clones hang out, they're just talking amongst themselves. Yeah. And this time there were other people for the clones to talk to. Yeah. Until I played Helena, who's like the um, Ukrainian serial killer. Crazy clones. Yeah, totally. Spoiler alert. Exactly. Yeah, sorry, guys. <laughs> Helena sat at the table by herself for three minutes eating broccoli with sugar on it and just talking to nobody kind of made sense. <laughs> that was the easiest was like the clone scene I've understood. ever had to do. Yeah, I was like, this... this <laughs> This is true. Although you have, in other interviews, talked a little bit about how you prepare to portray each different character. You apparently keep a playlist of music for each character and listen to it before you portray them. We actually had a a listener. We're going to get to some listener etiquette questions in a minute here. But we had a listener write in and actually ask what you, Tatiana, listen to music-wise. Currently? Yes, Oh my god, it's so embarrassing. No, right now, like it's honestly, I don't know what happened to me, but I Oh, I can't I wait. rediscovered the Ying Yang Twins and I was like, "Whoa. Yeah, terrible." No, I don't even know what is that Canadian? No, no they're hor- like they're not good musicians. They're like terrible rap music that's mm. like Look up the Whisper song. <laughs> I was yeah. It's that's so been your bad. jam lately. It's a lot of terrible hip hop right now because I I'm tired and I feel like I need something to keep me going. It gives you energy. Yeah, yeah that's legit. <laughs> no shame it's in not, that. Don't don't encourage me, please. <laughs> I can't wait. To, I can't wait to put a big dose of yin yangs in this really interview. I'm right so here. embarrassed right now. <laughs> We are men of our word, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the Yin Yang Twins. Mm-hmm. I can see how this would get stuck in your head, though. I think she's it's selling it short. Something. All right. Folks, you may have noticed Tatiana didn't answer any etiquette questions in our etiquette segment there. Nope. N- never fear. She will be back right after a short break to do just that. Plus, we meet Duncan Sheik, composer of the Broadway musical version of American Psycho. That and Holt, it's shaping up to be a special psychopathic edition of the DPD. <laughs> Stick around if you dare. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, musician Duncan Sheik tells us about his murderous new synth-pop musical. But first, still with us to answer your etiquette questions is Emmy-nominated actor Tatiana Maslany. We were just speaking with her about the nine clones she plays on the hit BBC America series Orphan Black. So, Tatiana, clearly you can relate to other people. (laughs) You ready for these questions? Okay. All right. Here's question number one comes from someone calling themselves Ghost Saffron via Instagram. Good name. Ghost. Yeah, I like it. Both cool things, Ghost and Saffron. (laughs) 
My partner, writes Ghost Saffron, often gets mistaken for a certain music celebrity. The past couple times, he's just played along, posing for photos and signing dinner napkins. The celebrity spotters were thrilled, and my partner was saved the hassle of insisting he isn't a celebrity. Even so, this is probably ethically questionable. (laughs) What should one do? Should he keep doing it or not? P.S. The musician is Moby. Oh, that's a that's a look. <laughs> yeah. That's a specific yeah, look. It's kind of cool. Um, I think I feel like that's okay. I feel like that's totally reasonable. Yeah, really? I don't know that. Would Moby be open to autographs? Do you think? Yeah, yeah. Think Moby's actually a pretty approachable fellow in is Los he? Angeles. He owns oh. a restaurant. He's around. He's a man about town. Yeah. Okay. Well, then. Yeah, spread but the it love. Could get I ethically think. Dubious. If I'm not mistaken, Moby doesn't drink, for example. Uh-huh. Yes, and he's a vegan as well. Oh, as so yeah. if you do identify as a certain celebrity, your behavior, you have to act they, they may be celebrity. monitoring yeah. you. Right. You can't be just like swilling directly from a bottle of JD. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so it could get complicated. Also, what about those like looky likey scenarios where you just walk around at parties dressed as Michael Douglas or as Catherine Zeta Jones? Uh, paid lookalikes, yeah. They have agents and they go in to be paid to looky alikey. Yeah. And so I think this guy should really capitalize on this. No lawsuits will come of that, right? No, if not like, at all. I'm Moby, I no. can DJ here. Sure. Absolutely. Um, that's bad advice, I think. Thanks. <laughs> you're welcome. But if you want to take it, Ghost Saffron, you've got a career go lying ahead of you being Moby. <laughs> there you go. Next question comes from Liz in Virginia. And Liz writes, My friend, an American, does a terrible British accent. The thing is, she thinks it's the best. I don't think I should tell her because it would totally crush her. Then again, since she's known to share her talent with other people, maybe I'd save her some embarrassment. Uh Thoughts welcome in any accent. I'm always concerned about somebody who's like, this is the best. Like, (laughs) this thing I do is the best. That's a red flag. I feel like that's a big red flag. I think as a friend, you need to be like, hey, here's a lesson in humility. Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe she needs to actually go through it and Mm -hmm. actually like... Be humiliated? Yeah, be humiliated. Buy her a ticket. Take her to the UK. <laughs> Take her to a pub in the UK. But the British are too polite, don't you no. think? No. No. Okay. I think I think with that stuff They'd call her out. Yeah, because I've been called out on my terrible British accent. <laughs> but, so. but you don't really use your accent for anything other than a major television show. Yeah, major promotion. Yeah. <laughs> actually, actually, what what would Sarah, the British clone, have for a piece of advice for Liz? She'd be like, I don't know. I think she would just like. No, use the act. Do the accent. <laughs> oh, there's no way. You won't do the you accent. You can't pimp me out to do the accent. Why not? Let's try Rico. I'm in. I'm in like. A granny sweater right now. I need the clothing. Come on. All I right. am so sorry. So wait, so but we do have Liz's answer. So you're saying that I say, take her to Britain, have her humiliated in throw a her, throw her to the wolves. That's a pretty expensive <laughs> such way to deal friend. with this question. It's super expensive, but it's worth it. Here's something from Dave <laughs> in New York. Dave writes, I have a twin brother. We have oh this is good. We see a theme here. Yeah. We have a mutual friend who I want to ask out. But I kind of get the impression my brother is also interested oh. in her. Oh, no. Think it's cool if I just go ahead and ask her? Or am I under any obligation to give him a heads up first? I don't know the protocol. Oh. I bet this question also applies to clones, says Dave. Clone to call. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned about this yeah. for, a, for a few reasons. My first instinct was like, Freaky Friday, that. What if you can both date her? No, that's so oh, wrong. No, that's, that's very so wrong. modern. But um, I'd say, this is your twin brother. Do you not have like that twin brother, like, 
brain vibey thing where you go, oh, yeah. I know exactly what you're thinking at all yeah. times. Yeah, I yeah. thought that's supposed just to like, happen. But he, but he exactly. kind of does. He knows his brother likes this person. Mm. I mean, I feel like the Bible and other things covered this topic. <laughs> what doth the Bible tell us? Matthew I think Shakespeare 35. covered I mean, I feel like this is not an uncommon scenario, but no. what, what would, Tatiana, what would you do? Yeah, yeah, the Bible, just... but Tatiana, <laughs> what, do you, yeah. what do you have to say? Yeah, I, I, I'd say talk to your bro. Okay. Really bro down with him and be like, I have feelings for this girl. Mm-hmm. How deep is your love? And then have a competition about... And then arm about... wrestle? Yeah, exactly. I also just want to point out another point of etiquette. Um, at first, when I saw bro to call, I was a little scared. Yeah. But they're actually brothers, so I'm going to say it's okay to use the phrase bro here. Because it's not like bros. Not, yeah. It's like bro, bros. They're actually brother brothers. Call. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Brother call. It's, it's a brother call. So, All right. There you go, Dave. Multiple solutions to one etiquette question, Dave in New York, <laughs> which makes perfect sense coming from a woman who plays nine characters. Uh, Tatiana Maslani, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, so sorry. Tatiana Maslani, the fourth season of Orphan Black starts April 14th on BBC America. And you should probably use the time between now and then catching up on its very complicated plot. Yes. You'll thank us. But take a break, will you, to send us your etiquette questions via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Duncan Cheek has been penning pop music since the 90s, when his tune Barely Breathing was a top 20 hit. But these days, he may be best known as a Broadway composer. Among other musicals, he scored the unlikely hit Spring Awakening, based on a 19th century German play, and that won him a Tony. But Duncan's latest project is perhaps more unlikely. He has written the music and lyrics for a stage adaptation of Fred Easton Ellis' satirical 1991 horror novel American Psycho. It's about a successful narcissistic businessman named Patrick Bateman, who is also, at least in his mind, a serial killer. When I spoke to Duncan, I asked him what he knew about the book when he was offered this gig. Well, I had read the book in college when it first came out. And prior to that, I had read Less Than Zero, and I was a huge Brett Easton Ellis fan. That's his first novel. His first novel, right. And so I got American Psycho when it was hot off the presses. And frankly, it was a tough read for me. Obviously, the kind of really violent sections that are kind of threaded through the book, but also just the banality of evil Mm -hmm. (laughs) aspect of it and the vacuity and just the kind of droning on and on about the surfaces of things. Um, I think I didn't understand the satire that well as a 20-year-old. Uh, yeah, when the, when it first came out, it, it was just greeted with revulsion by a lot of critics. If you had told me back then it would be a mainstream musical, I would have thought you were pitching me a Saturday Night Live sketch. Well, what made yeah. you think any of this made sense? Well, I balked initially, um, but I had a long plane flight to Japan that week. And I said, well, I should buy this book again and reread it and just think about it at least. Hmm. And when I reread the book as a 39-year-old at that time, I was just amazed by how prescient and trenchant and predictive Brett really was about where the culture was heading. And I also got incredibly excited about trying to write music for a piece of musical theater that was coming more from a place of electronic dance music, for yeah, lack of a better word. Because it's set in the 80s. Yeah, because they were all going to these nightclubs that I was going to as a teenager as well, you know, Tunnel and Nels and Area and all these places. And so I just felt like, oh, what wouldn't it be cool if you did a piece of musical theater and the band was like Kraftwerk or Depeche Mode or <laughs> yeah. some version of that? Well, let's let's talk about the music for this, which, which really impressed me, by the way. Thank you. There is that strong synth 
pop quality to it, but I was actually expecting it to be a kind of falsely jovial. Mm. Yes. Because this is a satire and the main character loves Huey Lewis. Mm. But really, a lot of these songs have this air of melancholy. Did mm. you go into it knowing that was going to be the case? Or... You know, I think anybody who knows my discography at all knows that, like, mm. it's pretty hard for me to avoid the melancholy <laughs> That's in, true. in anything that I do. Barely breathing uh, is not an upbeat song. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I look, one could make a version of American Psycho that is very campy and jovial, as you say. And I think you could make that version of the show. But I was not interested in doing that. And it's really why I suggested Rupert Gould to direct the piece, because he's somebody who talks a lot more about Stanley Kubrick than he talks about, Mm. you know, Mm. other pieces of musical theater. And it doesn't mean you can't be funny, because there's, I mean, (laughs) we're getting like a lot of laughs. We're getting a lot more laughs than I thought we would get. There is irony in this. Yeah, it's full of it. But there's also some really serious ideas. Well, let's hear uh, actually a clip of uh, the song, uh, A Common Man. I haven't seen the show because I'm not in New York. I hope to catch it. But I'm guessing, knowing the story, that this is being sung from the point of view of Patrick Bateman to one of his victims. It is. He's he's invited two prostitutes over to his apartment and he's kind of gearing up for a, a session with them. There is little I won't do It's the same thing true of you I am needing so much more Every pleasure is a bore I am something other than Those synth hits at the end are so dire. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it, it occurred to me, listening to some of this, that you're a practicing Buddhist, I understand. Yes, and I am. here's a story about the anti-Buddhist, this, this soulless guy who lives only for surfaces and, and material gain. Part of what I found intriguing about this story is the fact that though I am a practicing Buddhist, <laughs> you know, I also... <laughs> I think all of us, like, we have a little bit of Patrick Bateman inside oh, us. <laughs> Look, it's part of the human condition, and it's part of the, the culture in which we live right now, where you, you do get kind of easily swept away by these desires for material things, and you're, you know, kind of, you become overly concerned with the surface beauty of people and objects. And and not, not mm. I don't I don't really see this as, like, a, a morality tale, But I do see it as like shining a light on some of these really dark aspects of living in this time of late capitalism, you know, no matter who you are. You know, speaking of maybe not hitting things too much on the head, what what are the, the pitfalls of writing pop tunes for musicals as opposed to standalone pop songs? It's very different in the sense that rather than me, you know, writing the 150th song about this girl who doesn't like me anymore, I can, <laughs> you know, I, I can write a song from the perspective of Patrick Bateman's girlfriend yeah. and her best friend and their obsession with Diane von Furstenberg and Come de Garçon and, yeah, and put, put that in a song. You know, it's not something I would do in my own music. But also I can imagine because you have to service a story, you have to be very specific, and you can't be maybe quite as metaphorical as you would like to, which is, I, I think, the place where, you know, musicals go awry, especially rock musicals. Yeah, I mean, look, for me personally, I just feel like I'm 
sticking my middle finger up at rules about how you need to write songs for musical theater because I don't care. I really don't. All I want to do is like have it be a cool piece of music that's working in the moment of the show and hopefully it deepens the character in some way and it, it makes your experience of the show more intense and visceral. But I'm not interested in telling the story through the song. Really? But <laughs> so you're, yes. you're maybe trying to capture more the atmosphere of the moment or the emotional climate of the moment rather than the story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, if you think about Porgy and Bess and you think about a song like Summertime, I mean, that's just all metaphor. You know, it's just a great piece of music. It doesn't, it's not like Elvis Presley, like, oh, I'm going to win this race, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Oh, man, they were the worst. The Elvis musicals were probably the worst offenders in that way. Yeah, poor guy. I don't think he had a lot to do with those songs. No, he did not. (laughs) You intersperse the original score and your original songs with some remixes, I guess you would call them, retakes on some Mm. mega popular late 80s tunes, Phil Collins in the air tonight, New Order's True Mm. Faith. Mm-hmm. They take on a totally different tone in this musical. Which one did you find either the hardest or the or the most satisfying to transform? Well, I mean, the, the one that I think is is most satisfying in the show is is in the air tonight. And my original conception was that we should definitely have some of these '80s pop songs in the show. Like I, I felt it would be churlish to not have them in there because there are so many songs that are referenced yeah. in the book. And he's Patrick Bateman is such a music aficionado himself. Um, and he's <laughs> with very questionable taste in music. Yes. <laughs> um, and his rants that he goes on about the music are, are hilarious. Yeah. But I've, I'm a little more of an Anglophile, so generally I went towards the UK kind of 80s artist. Tears for Fears features prominently. Yeah, Human League. and But my initial conception was that they would all be completely a cappella kind of choral arrangements. There's a lot of that still in there. And to me, that's one of the more satisfying parts of the show are just the purely kind of choral moments. All right. Well, let's go out on In the Air tonight, an example thereof. Thank you very much, sir, for uh, talking with us today. And good luck with the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Duncan Sheik, composer of the musical American Psycho. The show wrapped up its run in June. The soundtrack's available now. And that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download, folks. Aww. But there are plenty of ways to keep the party going. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Dinner Party DNLD. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Jackson Musker, associate producer Nina Patak, and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Our interns are Christian Coons and Carla Javier. Daniel Ramirez engineered the show. And today, we bid a fond farewell to our executive producer, Larissa Anderson. Alas, if yeah. you've noticed the show sounded especially great in the last year or so, that was thanks to her talent and hard work. Indeed. Larissa, thanks for everything, and bon appetit. <laughs>